Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning. Today God speaks to us from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 11. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of spirits, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one Spirit and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines the word of the Lord. All right. Well, we're continuing in this series. And uh, not too long ago, there was an article in the New York Magazine, actually. And the title of that article was Why Kids Need Spirituality. So it kind of caught my attention because New York Magazine is not exactly a religious publication. And so the author was essentially trying to make a case to very secular, sophisticated New Yorkers why it may be the case that our children, and kids, I know you're in the room, so maybe you could listen up a little bit more closely here, uh, why children in particular need spirituality in their lives. So it's kind of a fascinating example. So the author is writing uh, to the reader uh, and kind of describing like a, a typical reader who might be reading the article. So the author says this, You are, for example, not especially religious. Neither of you or you or your spouse believes much in God, although occasionally you might like to meditate and you would both like to go hiking more if you could. We've all had those moments, who hasn't, on mountaintops or in art museums or even in prayer, where you felt that overwhelming sense of bigness and smallness all at once. The awesomeness of existence, the miracle and the fragility of being human. But it's easy to switch the channel. Life, work, TV, an alluring new bar intervenes and all that reverence dissipates. And then you have kids. And that existential shoulder shrug kind of becomes a way of life. There's soccer and birthday parties and brunch. But the spiritual apathy nags at you. A tiny voice inside you insists on wondering whether your kids and you might need something more. The author continues like this, recent psychological and neurological research all point in the same direction. Children who are raised with a robust and well-developed spiritual life are happier, more optimistic, more thriving, more flexible, and better equipped to deal with life's ordinary and even extraordinary traumas than those who are not. Teenagers in particular are exponentially better off if they're in touch with their spiritual sides, less likely to abuse alcohol and drugs, to engage in risky sex, to cope with depression. In the entire realm of human experience, the author writes, there is no single factor that will serve your adolescent better than a personal sense of spirituality. 
And the author concludes like this, in a culture where an obsession with money, fame, and cynicism have become toxic dominant values, our children need a spiritually grounded life at every age. Uh, we're continuing our series on the Holy Spirit. We've been calling it Numa, which is a Greek word for the Spirit. And part of the reason why I think this series is so crucially important is that in a secular society like the world that we live in today, and especially like a city like New York, a society that is stripped of its sense of transcendence and the spiritual, a society that seeks to be built inside kind of this iron cage of rationality, there is nevertheless in our souls a deep hunger and thirst and quest for something more. And maybe you're here with us today and it's the first time you've been in church or you haven't been back in a very, very long time. And it's this sense that there must be something more. That there must be something more to this life. There must be something more after this life. There this can't be all that there is. That sense of transcendence, that sense of the spiritual is a part of the human existence, the human mindset that you simply cannot stamp out. And so one author put it like this. He says, like a secular society that's built entirely on this iron cage of rationality. He says it's a little bit like an explorer. So he tells a little parable. It's a little bit like an explorer who has gone out into the wilderness and discovered a fountain of life, a fountain of living water. And that explorer, in discovering the source of life, builds an entire community around that fountain of life because this is a source of meaning. This is, a source of, uh, this is the hope of the future, this fountain of life. And then a king comes along and discovers how valuable this land is and decides to pave over that fountain with thick slabs of marble to create an entire kingdom of concrete and marble. And the author says, if you can imagine that scenario, you can imagine that for a while, because the marble is thick and strong, it could maybe stand up over top of this fountainhead of water. But you give it time and the water will begin to seep out. It will begin to pool. It will begin to spray forth. The geysers will begin to shoot out. And those thick slabs of marble will begin to break under the very force of life. And the author says a, spirit, a secular society seeking to place iron, marble slabs over the fountain of life, our sense of the spiritual, our sense of something more, will be a society that sees spirituality pooling and seeping and beginning to break out. And I think that's largely what we see in our world today. We like to think of ourselves as disenchanted people living in a disenchanted world. And yet everywhere around us, we see this impulse to refill the world with greater meaning, to re-enchant the world with presence. So I have a younger brother who's obsessed with Peloton. And we joke how, like, your real church is Peloton. You'll sometimes skip church and watch church online, but you'll go in person and make sure you make sure you do that Peloton. So Peloton and SoulCycle is an entire culture of spirituality. There's more to it than just the exercise, isn't there? Or you think about just the rise of, of, of popularity around tarot readings and energy crystals. Or even, and our family loves these things, I'm not trying to uh, be negative about it, but even all the movies and obsession with superheroes and multiverses, I can't help but look at all that and say we're looking for something beyond. We're looking for something that a purely secular, rational answer simply cannot satisfy. 
we're looking for something more. And in many senses, I always say that that sense of something beyond, and if you're here because that's what keeps on nagging at you, can I tell you that's one of God's greatest kindnesses to you. He won't let you go. He won't let you be satisfied. That The great theologian St. Augustine said that we will always be restless until our soul finds its rest in our Maker, Creator, Redeemer, and King. And that's why I think this sermon series is so important because we're asking our questions, what uniquely does Christianity have to offer? If you're here and you're searching out the spiritual, why is Christianity even something that you should think about? And the answer to that question is, what, of, of what does Christianity uniquely have to offer? I think the answer to that is the Holy Spirit. There is no other spiritual resource like the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and you won't find it anywhere else aside from Christianity. So it's never been more important to understand uh, His work. We've been in an entire series. We've looked at the spirit of creation, the spirit of salvation, the Holy Spirit and the work in baptism and in His filling. Last week we started a two-part section on the gifts of the Spirit. And today we're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit specifically with regards to the gift of prophecy. And I actually think this topic of prophecy is particularly compelling to all of us for this one reason. I thought about it this week. I'm like, why is the gift of prophecy like so compelling? Why do we want this at some level? And I think the answer is this, that prophecy tells us that it's possible that there might be a word specifically for me coming to me from beyond the veil. It tells us, it holds out the promise that maybe there is a word for me in particular from God Himself. And who doesn't want that? And so it's a very compelling topic, but the Apostle Paul, who wrote the text that we're looking at today, also tells his readers in Corinth, because it's so compelling, we also have to be extremely careful when we think about the gift of prophecy. So let's look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll look at one other in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul lays down a basic understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit through the gift of prophecy. Three points that I want to take us that will guide us through this. First, Paul lays down the spiritual anchors when it comes to prophecy. We can kind of think of these as guardrails or guidelines. Secondly, he talks about prophets as a spiritual foundation, and we'll talk about what that means. And then thirdly, we'll think about prophecy for today. What does that look like? Okay, so spiritual anchors for prophecy, the prophets as a spiritual foundation, and then prophecy for today. So first, uh, spiritual anchors for prophecy. Uh, we see this mostly in verses 1 through 7. But let me back up a little bit and tell you a little bit about Corinth. The spiritual climate and situation in Corinth is actually very similar to what we find ourselves here in New York City today. So Corinth was actually a very wealthy city. It was known as one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient Mediterranean. It was known for its commerce. Uh, it was a place that drew entrepreneurs. So basically, if you wanted to find a place where you could make it, Corinth was the place where you wanted to go. And because of that, it was an incredibly diverse city. And it was also a city that really emphasized freedom. A little bit like New York today, it says, as long as you don't harm others, you should be able to free to live however it is that you want. Uh, Corinth was where you went to make it. It was a sophisticated, but also a highly spiritual city. And the church in Corinth reflected that city. And so the church that Paul had started in Corinth started to run into problems very, very early on. Because in Corinth, you had these highly spiritual people 
who were coming into the church, and they were exceeding that the Holy Spirit was alive and well in that church. And inside the church in Corinth, the people that were kind of rising to prominence were those who claimed to be prophets and super prophets. Uh, this was a church that Paul himself had to defend his own apostleship, to defend his own authority. Because in Corinth they said, Paul is not that impressive. He doesn't do these sorts of things that you'd expect of a very spiritual person. He's very ordinary. Whereas we, the super prophets, we have these resumes. We have these experiences. And so rising within the church in Corinth were these super prophets. Corinth was a city where, that had temples on every single corner. It was a city where an ancient paganism uh, that saw kind of spiritual forces at work, that was a prevalent way that people saw the world. It was, again, a very enchanted world in the city of Corinth. Uh, mystics and philosophers would rise in, Cor in Corinth. They would often teach people the way that you find yourself is to discover the divine spark within, and then you pursue that divine spark no matter what anybody says about you. Does any of that sound familiar to you? It was an ancient paganism, and in many respects, we're kind of seeing a resurgence of that same kind of spirituality. But here was the problem that was facing the church in Corinth. Because they had all these figures who were putting them forth as pro themselves forth as prophets and super prophets, they were saying, unless you have these ecstatic personal experiences with God, unless God gives you these personal insights into divine mystery, you don't actually know who Jesus is. And so in Corinth, there was a lot of division that was emerging. Uh, there was hierarchies, and there was this cult of personality where you follow these different prophets within that church. And everywhere Paul looked, when he looked at the Corinth, he saw the possibility of great abuses. That if you claim this spiritual authority, you could claim spiritual power over others. That people who had these experiences could not be held accountable. There was no way of discounting whether their spiritual experiences meant spiritual authority. And so it was a place of a lot that lacked all kinds of accountability where nobody could question or challenge these super prophets that were arising. And it was in that context that the Apostle Paul tells the Christians in Corinth, and he says, if you want to understand a genuinely Christian experience of the spiritual gifts, it's going to be very different from your pagan past. A genuinely Christian experience of these spiritual gifts are going to have three features. And this is in verses 1 through 7. The first one is in verse 3. So if you could throw up that verse there as well. The very first um, uh, sign of a genuine spiritual gift for the Christian is that first and foremost, it exalts Jesus as Lord. Verse 3, it says, Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is the Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them on. What Paul was saying was this. He says that the direction of Christian spirituality is actually radically different from your old paganism. He says your old paganism... Uh, uh, pulled you deeper into your spiritual self. It pulled you deeper into isolation, deeper into these individualized, personal, mystical experiences, and it separated you out from the ordinary. But he says, for Christian spirituality, it takes you in the exact opposite direction. It doesn't take you deeper into a mystical self. It pulls you out of yourself and all of the sin and the chaos and the contradictions of yourself. And what does it do? It exalts Jesus, and it takes you outside of yourself to worship someone who's beyond you. 
It lifts up Jesus as Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that the Christian life means that there's no inner work. It doesn't mean that there's no internal reflection. But at the end of the day, Paul is saying a genuine experience of the Holy Spirit might show you more of yourself, but it shows you more of yourself so you can exalt Jesus in your heart. It takes you so far beyond yourself that you would say, I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace. It's the source for all humility that says, my experiences mean nothing. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says exactly this. All of my resume, all of my experiences, all of my qualifications, those are rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. The Spirit had pulled Paul out of all of his achievements, out of all of his spiritual mysticism, and drawn him to Jesus. It exalts Christ above all other things. Here's what one author says when he describes the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells a story. I remember walking to church on one winter evening, and I turned the corner, and I saw the church lit up around that corner. And he says, when floodlighting is done well, the lights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. You are just meant to see the building and all of its dignity being thrown into detail, into relief, and you see it because of these floodlights. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's role. He is the hidden floodlight shining on Jesus the Savior. He says this, and it's as if the Spirit always stands behind you, throwing light over your shoulder on Jesus whose beauty is illuminated, Jesus who stands facing us. And so the work of the Holy Spirit, a genuine mark that this is the Spirit of God that is at work, and not a counterfeit spirit. A genuine mark of that Spirit is that the Spirit of God is radically Christ-centered. He doesn't isolate you into your own self. He draws you out of yourself and points you to a Savior that is beyond you. A second thing, which is similar actually, is that a Christian understands a genuine spiritual gift because first it exalts Jesus as Lord, but secondly, a spiritual gift is always used to serve and meet the needs of others. Look at verse 7. 7 tells us exactly why the, spirit is, uh, the gifts are given. So if you could throw that up there. Verse 7, it says, Now to each one the manifestation is, of the Spirit is given. Why? For the common good. So it's not given to exalt the self. It's not given to accrue spiritual power or authority for yourself. The, give, the gifts of the Spirit, the manifest of the Spirit is given for the common good. The purpose of the gifts is always to meet the needs of others, not to fill an emptiness within yourself. Genuine spiritual gifts, according to the Bible, are both Christ-centered and other-centered. And in Corinth, these spiritual gifts, again, were being used to basically create cults of ego, these kind of cults of personality that ended up dividing the church rather than uniting the church around Jesus. And what Paul says is, no, if you, know, you want to know how you know if you're, that your spiritual gift is genuine, is your gift given to you primarily to meet the needs of others and not to lift yourself up? It's radically other-centered. Here's part of what this means. The Bible teaches that every single one of us here in this room you have a spiritual gift that the rest of us need. 
and the rest of us are impoverished until you exercise that gift for the good of others. We cannot experience the common good here at Redeemer East Harlem apart from you contributing your gifts to the community of the Spirit of God is gathering here. This goes beyond attending, though we love that you're here. It means attending and recognizing when you come, I come because there's somebody in this room who needs my gifts, who needs my word, who needs my encouragement, who needs my support today. To come with the mentality to say, this is the community that I'm meant to pour into. And even as I pour into, I find myself receiving the gifts of others. We need your gifts. We will never be whole. We will never be what God wants us to be here in East Harlem without you. We need you here. And so first, these spiritual gifts exalt Jesus as Lord. Secondly, it serves the need of the other. And thirdly, and I'll say this very briefly, spiritual gifts are always exercised in the context of a local community. That they're not meant to be exercised on our own. And actually all the rest, not only chapter, uh, ele- verse 11 here, but the rest of chapter 12 that we don't get into is Paul talking about how all of these gifts come together and when they're coming together, what happens? We see the local body of Christ in that particular area, in that city. So in order for the body of Christ to be made visible in Corinth, the members of the church of Corinth had to come together and exercise those gifts with one another. Here's what one commentator says on that. He says, To be truly spiritual <clears throat> drives a person neither to ecstasy nor to individualism nor to otherworldliness, but to the ordinary life of the local church as an expression of his personal commitment to Jesus as Lord and to his body here on earth. It is there that the implications of what it is to be spiritual, men and women of the Spirit, will will be worked out. That There's something ordinary about this local community with all the awkwardness, with all the ordinariness, with all the small things, all the things that it requires for a group of aggregate individuals to actually be knit together into a community on mission for its neighborhood. All of the ordinary stuff that needs to happen, that's where our spiritual gifts are meant to be exercised. Now all of these things, if these are the anchors, spiritual anchors for this ultimate gift of prophecy, we've been talking about gifts in general, and then we'll get to prophecy in just a moment. But if these are the spiritual anchors, the three anchors for prophecy, exalting Christ, serving the needs of others in the context of the local church, if those are the anchors of prophecy and spiritual gifts, it was just as countercultural then as it is today. They were looking for these extraordinary, dramatic spiritual experiences, but instead Paul was like, no, just get together and learn what it means to serve one another in the context community. That's what the gifts are for. Radically countercultural. Okay, so that's the first point, the spiritual anchors for our gifts in, in general. <clears throat> but secondly now, let's turn to our anchors for prophecy, uh, an- uh, sorry, prophets as a spiritual foundation. So the first one was spiritual anchors for prophecy. Secondly, the prophets as a spiritual foundation. Here I want to turn our attention actually to another passage in Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, because this is where I think Paul talks most clearly about specifically the gift of prophecy. So that's what we're trying to talk about today. Uh, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, so I think we should have a slide for that. Uh, here's what Paul says. He says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, 
but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So here's the Apostle Paul writing about the local church as the household of God. And he says, this household of God, he takes this imagery of the house of God or the temple of God. This household of God is built upon a foundation. And that foundation consists of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus as the cornerstone. Okay, so keep that image in mind because imagery of foundation is crucial, isn't it? If you think about any building, you look at any building going up in the city, the amount of work that's put into the foundation first and then once the foundation is complete, then you can build the structure on top of that. The foundation is crucial to the soundness of the entire building. And what's really interesting to me here is that Paul includes prophets in the foundation of the New Testament church. Verse 20, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Now, why is that important? that he would include apostles or uh, prophets in with the apostles as the foundation of the church. Here's why the apostles, many of you may know, were the original disciples of Jesus, the 12 that walked around with Jesus on the earth. You would add to that a couple of others, Judas, who you know, uh, takes his own life and is replaced, I think, by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. And then the apostle Paul is also a prophet, uh, an apostle of the early church. So these are the 12 who walked around with Jesus and they also had the authority to write scripture. So the apostles were those who wrote scripture. So all the books of the New Testament are written by one of the apostles, or if not apostle, by someone who gathered the eyewitness testimonies of the apostles. So Mark and Luke would be examples of that. Neither of them were apostles, but they were working on the eyewitness firsthand testimony of the apostles. And so what Paul is saying that the, that the New Testament church is built on the foundation of the scripture writing authority of the apostles. But then he also says that the prophets are part of that. And Jesus, of course, who is the Word made flesh, is the cornerstone on which everything is built. So this is the foundation. Now, why would the Apostle Paul include prophets as part of that foundation? Because the New Testament prophets weren't apostles. The New Testament prophets, what did they do? Like the apostles, they were able to give new revelation from God, but they weren't at the level of Scripture. But Paul says the prophets are part of that foundation. And you say, well, why is that? Now, some of you might stop and you think, but what if Paul is saying, he's not talking about New Testament prophets. What if he's talking about Old Testament prophets? So when he says the foundation of the church, the household of God, is the apostles and the prophets, what if he means the New Testament and the Old Testament? Which actually is not a bad translation. Except for the fact that just a couple of verses later, this is literally two sentences later in his argument, Paul writes this. If you could put up Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 there. Paul says, In reading this letter, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So he sees himself as an apostle, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So when Paul's talking about apostles and prophets here in Ephesians, he's not talking about the Old Testament prophets. Because verse 5, he explicitly says, I'm not talking about people in other generations. He's saying something has been revealed anew by the Spirit to his apostles and his prophets today during the New Testament era. So what does it mean that the, the prophets were part of the foundation of God? And I think the answer to that is this. 
Just as the New Testament scriptures would have to be written and finished, just as Christ's work as the Word made flesh had to be finished, the work of the prophets would also be finished in the laying of the foundation of the church, and then the rest of the building would be built on top of that. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Because here's what's also interesting. As a modern person, if you start to read the Bible, maybe one of the first things that will strike you is how supernatural the Bible is. And Christians do have a very supernatural view of the world. But if you read through the Bible and you're a relatively modern person, you might read through it and you're like, dude, there are miracles everywhere. There are like people getting healed. There are prophets. There are all kinds. Of, there's crazy things going on. Like, gee, God is doing crazy stuff all throughout the entire Bible. Why don't we see that crazy stuff today? Like, why do we see less of the supernatural stuff today? And that might be your impression, but if you stop and you read more closely, the vast majority of the supernatural stuff that grabs your attention actually only happens in three clusters. One is with the Exodus, so the ministries of Moses and Joshua. Another one is with Elijah and Elisha during exile. And the third one is with Jesus in the New Testament. And now you say, well, why would God cluster all of his miraculous, all of his supernatural works in those three eras? Because those were three points where God was very clearly moving forward his plan to save the human race. That when God was acting in a decisive way, he sent signs and wonders to validate this work as a genuine work of God. And then on top of that, not only was he acting in human history, not only was he sending signs and wonders to validate those actions, he was also sending people to explain exactly what it is that God was doing so we wouldn't have to guess at it. And so we have the writing of scriptures. We have signs and wonders, all accompanying a decisive work of God in the history of the world. And Paul, of course, understood the work of Jesus' death and resurrection as the ultimate work of God in this world. And so in that New Testament era, we see the explosion of signs and wonders. They had to be prophecy. They had to be apostles in order to explain exactly what just happened when Jesus died and rose again from the dead. God didn't want it to leave it to us to try to figure this out, to feel this out. He came to explain exactly what it was. And so Paul says the apostles and the prophets along with Jesus are the foundation of the earth. And if the apostles and the prophets were the foundation, then there is no chance of new scripture being written today. And I would also say that the gift of prophecy as new revelation from God has ceased with writing of scriptures just as Christ's work was completed upon that cross. Prophets were a foundation a foundation that we absolutely needed. So now I want to ask us the question, so what does all this mean for us today? All right, so there's a third and final point. I think this will be quicker, but I always tell people, never trust a preacher when he tells you he'll be quick. He's almost always lying. He doesn't even realize it. Okay, so third, prophecy for today. So what can we affirm about prophecy for today? The first thing is this. A Christian believes in a God who is always speaking and working in the world. So a Christian sees the world as an enchanted place of God's supernatural presence. There is no corner of the world where God is absent. I love C.S. Lewis's quote on this. 
where he says this. He says, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. The Christian believes in the God who is always speaking and working in the world. That outside of us, the heavens are always pouring forth speech. The trees themselves are waving their limbs in praise to God. The oceans are roaring with the message of its creator. The, the mountains are resounding with the very voice and the majesty of God. Even our daily bread, Jesus teaches us, our daily bread is gifts from God sent to us from heaven to remind us of his love for him. It is a world alive with the presence of God. It is a world bursting with God's love. It is a world coming apart at the seams with the presence of its creator, that a Christian sees a world filled with a God who is always speaking in community. Like even within, it's not just outside of us that God is speaking to us. Even inside our hearts, God is constantly speaking. We're restless until we find our rest in him. That outside of us, inside of us, is a God who is always speaking and communicating. We can pave over the supernatural, but it will always seep forth. It will always break through. It will break the concrete. We can't shake the supernatural. We're always hearing echoes of the voice of the Spirit of God. So that's the first thing. Secondly, a Christian also believes that we believe in a God who not only speaks to us constantly in the world, we also believe in a God who speaks to us clearly through his word. That he cares too much about you needing to hear from him to leave it to much question. You see, if the Bible is God's word, don't you realize that every time you open it, you're opening a portal into the very heart of God, the very center of the universe. And it's right there in your living room. It's right there in your pockets. It's right there on your phones. And every time we open it, we're opening a portal into the center of the universe, into the very heart of God. That God cares too much about communicating with you to leave it to a subjective experience. He's spoken clearly to us in his word. What I also love about the fact that God speaks to us in his word, it means that every time we open up the word, it's not a word or an experience that isolates us from the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The word of God, what does it do? It creates a community across every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And it creates a community that looks the same word and hears the very word of God. And it draws us together into a new people of God. It's God communicating. It's the very word of God to us. Third, God also actually, I believe, does speak to us through others. So this is where it's like, wait, I thought you just said prophecy ceased with the New Testament. Like, what do you mean? I think here's where I think an important nuance has to be brought in. I do believe in a God who speaks to us through others. So I do believe that capital P prophecy has ceased. That there is no new revelation, there's no new information or content that God needs to get across to us. That in Jesus, the incarnate word of God, God has said everything that we needed for life and godliness. God has said everything he needed to say to us. All the truths of the Bible are complete. It's a foundation. But while there's no more large capital P prophecy, 
I do believe that something like a small p prophecy continues. And what I mean by this is this, that there are some times where you need somebody else to take the Word of God that we know is in Scripture and shoot it like an arrow into your heart. Sometimes you need somebody else who's prompted by the Holy Spirit to come to you so that the Word of God's truth will hit you right between the eyes and will never leave you. That you need the timely delivery of the truth that we find in God's Word in a way that it strikes the soul. And I believe that. I believe that's what can happen in preaching. I believe actually that's what should be happening when we speak to one another and we try to point one another to Jesus, that there should be moments where our, the hairs stand up on the back of our necks because we sense that God has sent this message and it's all truths that we found in Scripture but applies to me right now. So if someone says to you, if God wants you to know you are not alone, that's a word that you needed in that time, in that place. That we need that ministry one to another. But here, let me say this. Oh, I thought this would be much faster. I'm, going, I'm trying to go quickly here, I promise. All of us, though, may have experiences where we're like, I don't know what to do with that. This guy, person prophesied over me, and I got all this. In, it's crazy. Like, I don't know what to do with it. I'm with you. I grew up in a charismatic kind of a background. I've had those experiences as well. So what I say as a Presbyterian, I say, look, the Holy Spirit is going to blow where he wills. The Holy Spirit doesn't stop to ask Abe Cho permission whether he can do X, Y, or Z. So he doesn't need my theological permission to do what he's going to do. That being said, though, if you have some of these experiences, I would say to you just pastorally, I don't think God wants you to base your life decisions around new information that somebody else gave to you telling you that it's from God's Word. I think God might want you to take that, put it in a jar, put it up on yourself, live wisely and biblically and humbly and Christ-like, and maybe you'll come back and you look at the jar on the shelf, you're like, hey, huh, that actually turned out to be true. Wow. And to that I say, look, the Spirit of God can do what He wills, but don't base your life decisions around a word. Let me tell a quick story. Sorry. I keep saying it and be quick, but quick story. Just because I think pastoralism is important. I have a friend, I was just talking with her this week, and she told me how like, she had just uh, gotten, gone through a really, really bad breakup. She felt like it was the right thing to do. She talked to her friends and even like a pastor in her life who all said, yeah, yeah this guy is no good for you. Totally break up, like it should be over. But, you know, right after a breakup, it's tough, right? So you, she's kind of heartbroken, and she, she's, you know, struggling and that sort of thing. She ended up going to a Christian conference. And at this conference in the seminar, the person who was leading the seminar had, like, envelopes. And inside the envelope was a scripture passage that was supposed to be for each person. And so she was like, oh, wow, this is crazy. She's like, yeah, I prayed over these things, and so, Lauren, I think this is for you, and that kind of thing. And so she opened it, and the, the, the text that uh, she pulled out there was uh, from Ruth, where it's just a passage where it says, Ruth went to Boaz's feet and uncovered his feet, and that's how you knew that you know, they were supposed to be together. So she reads that, and she's like, oh, my gosh. What if I'm supposed to, like, uncover this dude's feet, whatever that means? <laughs> like, oh my, like, this is the Bible. Like, this is God's word. I've got to obey God's word. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, what am I supposed to do? And so for the longest time, because she got this, and again, it's a passage of the Bible, because she got this, she was like, maybe i got to get back together with this guy. Like, maybe I ended it too quickly. Despite the fact that all of her friends said, this dude's not good for you. Pastor said, this dude's not good for you. She herself, no, this dude's not good for me. But because of this moment, 
it made her second guess that for the next year. And now she's married to somebody else. She's like, oh, thank God I didn't do it. You know, I didn't go back. Now, but she said what happened there for the next year, that one passage of Scripture got taken completely out of the context of the Bible and resituated in the context of her life. And now it took on a meaning that God never meant it to take on. It took Scripture and restoried Scripture into her life in that moment rather than the other way around. And so all that to say, I think, yes, God can do supernatural things. But don't base your life decisions on new information that supposedly God gave to somebody else. Put it in a jar, put it on the side. I think if she had put it in a jar, put it on the side, she would look back and say, no, whatever that was, it didn't mean that. And I know that for sure. But there is still a need for us to be able to speak God's word to one another to have timely words of love and compassion to each other. Finally, the fourth thing that we can affirm. So first, we affirm a God who's always speaking in the world and in our hearts. Secondly, we affirm a God who has spoken clearly to us in His Word. Thirdly, we affirm a God who does speak to us through others, but around those anchors with those guardrails. Fourth and finally, and this is the wonder of the Gospel, friends, we serve a God. Christians believe in a God who doesn't just offer you a message from beyond the veil. We serve a God who himself stepped through the veil to come and give you his embrace. See, the reason why prophecy is so compelling is we say, what if it's possible that the God of the universe has, wants to send a message to me from across the veil? But when you're suffering, you don't need a message you don't need an email. You don't need a note. You don't need a promise. When you're suffering, what you need is not a word or a message of God's love. You need the presence of God in love. We serve a God who, in Jesus Christ, stepped through the veil, who took on flesh, and who came and didn't just show us a display of love, a God who came in and paid the price of love who laid down his life to forgive you of your sins so that you might know you are never alone, that there is a God beyond the veil who always sees you, who has a word for you, who wants you to know you're never alone, who stepped through the veil so that you could see his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth, the face of Jesus Christ the Word of God incarnate. That's the God that we come to. That's the God who has a message for you. And it's the message of the Gospel. So let's hear what He has to say to us today. Let's see Him reach beyond the veil at the table as we're about to take it today. Receive from Him the body and blood of Christ again. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word even when it's very long. We thank you, Lord God, that you desire not only to speak, but you desire to show us your face. And we know that no one can see the face of God and live. And yet in Jesus Christ, we've seen your glory, the glory of the one and only. So Lord, rather than desiring 
or some mystical experience on the outside. Help us to see in your word the beauty of Jesus and in him, Lord God, to see everything that you want to say to us. So we thank you for the gifts of your spirit. We thank you for all of our spiritual hunger. Lord, I pray that our hunger would draw us nearer to Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.